Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about a new partner, Arostia, a new coffee roaster based in Queens. This company was created by and is run by a huge fish fan, Andy Hollander, who hasn't caught a hold your head up since 12, 15, 95, but is definitely not bitter about it. I've had this coffee and it's really great. Andy started roasting coffee during the pandemic, taught himself, and then that turned into this label, Arostia, which launched late last year. I had a bag of the Ethiopian coffee and it was gone really quickly because I liked it so much and I drank a lot of it and I need more. The beans were grown at an altitude of 2,100 meters above sea level, which contributes to a dense bean that continues to develop its flavors after the roasting process is done. The tasting notes include apple, raisin, and caramel, and there are more coffees coming very soon. So support this fan-owned business and try the coffee today. And for Osiris listeners, there's a 10% discount code on the site. Use the code OSIRIS at checkout for 10% off your order, and stay tuned for the launch of a coffee subscription. You can order and sign up for the mailing list at arostia.com. That's A-R-O-A-S-T-I-A.com. And you can find Arostia on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks, Arostia. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out MagicalMysteryCamp.com slash HelpingFriendly to learn more. Osiris. And there it is. Another weekend has passed. Another Monday has come. And Monday means one thing 
around these parts. Free bagels. Helping. Free bagels? Oh, no, sorry. Free bagels on Mondays is a really good idea. I should... Now that my son's out of school, I should start having him go pick up bagels. Although I live in high altitude, I can't really get good bagels out here. I can get decent donuts, get a good croissant, but I can't get good bagels. But we're not here to talk about food. That was last week's premium episode. Thank you to all of our subscribers out there who listen to us describe our sandwiches, our favorite sandwiches, our second tier sandwiches, and our runners up sandwiches as well. This is, of course, of course, the Helping Friendly Podcast live coming at you on June 13th, 25 years to the day since Steve Kerr hit one of, not the, one of the biggest shots in Chicago basketball history, stole the spotlight from Michael Jordan, won us the 1997 NBA Finals. It was also... It's also 25 years to the day since Fish kicked off their summer European tour, which we are going to be talking about here today. We have an excellent, excellent, very special, did I mention excellent, guest, Rob Mitchum, who's going to be joining us to talk through 613 and 61497 in Dublin, Ireland, kicking off the summer European tour. But before we get to all of that, RJ, how are you doing? It's also nine years to the day since we started the Helping Friendly Podcast. So what do you think about that Amazing. for important anniversaries? That's pretty That's good. A really, do you remember what episode one was? It was yeah, the first of course. One. Yeah, it was 11.30.95. That's a yeah. good first good episode. Show. Yeah, show. and then which was later released as, a, as an official release after that, of course. But it's because of that. Yeah, because of that. I'm just you know, saying. Um, that's pretty awesome. And I just want to say, as you're here and I can say this, I'm, uh, thrilled to have been a part of this podcast for so long. It's thank been, you. It's been a great thing in my life for many years. I've Me too. It. It's been a great thing to have you be part of it. Thank you. I don't know if it's been a great thing to have me be a part of it, but it's been a great thing oh, in my been, life to be a part of it. No, I, I know. I'm just, you know, <laughs> laying it out there for you to give me the... The compliment. We'll throw it Thank away. you, Ben. Um, I remember, so nine years ago, summer 2013, I was in South Korea and I was training for a marathon and I was trying to figure out podcasts to listen to when I was going on very, very long runs. And out of nowhere in early July 2013, I get recommended on iTunes, the Helping Friendly Podcast. And I was like, do I really want to listen to other people talk about fish? Like, do I need to? And then I listened to it and I was like, these guys are great. The content's great. At the time, it's only, it's kind of improved, but at the time, the audio quality was excellent. The guests were great. The format was great. And it was perfect for me to be able to listen to like a three hour podcast while I went on an 18 mile run. So thank you. It's been great to become friends with you guys over the last nine years. I can't believe it. We were all so young. Some of us were still old, but most of us were so young nine years ago. I, I'm taking that that little aside personally. <laughs> but speaking of being old and anniversaries, tomorrow is the 31st anniversary of my first Grateful Dead show. Wow. 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 This is just right. groundbreaking week. There's so much stuff happening everywhere. Did I mention that it was That's, 25 know, years Matt ago today? Really 
that the Chicago Bulls won their fifth NBA yep. title? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I heard that somewhere probably <laughs> yep. here because I wouldn't have read it anywhere on purpose. <laughs> we are not here to talk. We're not going to go through every HF pod episode. We are not going to rehash every single game of the 1997 NBA Finals, though I would like to. I would love to do that. We are, however, today going to be talking about Fish 1997, which is a moderately celebrated year in their catalog, in their overall history. And as I mentioned, oh, Brian Eagle, you got me. I'm just going to pause for a sec because we got to celebrate the Bulls. Cheap. Come on. You know, you got to try harder to get pushed on the screen like that, people. (laughs) You just got to satisfy my sporting love. Um, (laughs) Like I mentioned, we're going to be bringing Rob Mitchum at Fish Crit on today to talk through 613 and 614. 1997, really excited about this. Two really interesting shows uh, that kicked off the Summer European Tour. Before that, we need to tell you about our wonderful sponsor at Sunset Lake CBD. And Jonathan, I feel like I really need to hear from you about why you love Sunset Lake CBD. From me? Okay. Well, let me tell you. Sunset Lake CBD's line of smokable hemp products are for the old deadhead, excuse me, or young fish fan searching for a mellow body high. Smoking CBD has all the benefits of high THC cannabis without the paranoid and anxious side effects. With nine different strains from this year's harvest, there is something for everyone. The Hawaiian Haze is awesome for an outdoor show. Cherry Abacus is best for the end of the night. And all of the flour is grown, cured, and trimmed by Sunset Lake CBD farmers. Even better, Sunset Lake CBD's farm-to-table approach gets you great pricing on premium CBD flour by shipping directly from their farm to your door. Uh, I, I, look, I mean, the stuff's rad. It, it smokes nice. The, the pre-rolls are really pleasant. Uh, just went, sat down and had one just yesterday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. I had some stuff to do, but I wanted to, uh, you know, have a little smoke. Had some of that Hawaiian haze and uh, came back and got busy working on another podcast project that I have. And uh, it was great. I loved it. So uh, you can check them out today at www.sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code HFPOD for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Is that beautiful? Is that okay, Brian? Is that what you needed? I think we should do it again just to reemphasize. No, that was excellent. You set the mood, set the tone. Okay. We are going to jump into the main section of the show here. Unless anyone has anything else that they want to share about anniversaries. Two years ago today was June 13th, 2020. That's all I got. Actually, there's no story there. 2000. It wasn't 20. 2000. See, Come math on. is not Come my on. strong suit. Fish was in Japan. That... There you go. Wow. I would say that there is. You should scrap this entire podcast plan and talk about We're... Japan. Rob, there were I need a lot you of backstage to prep for Japan 2000. We're going to talk about it right now. No, there have been a lot of guests on our podcast over the years, and I I tried to look on the internet to find out when Rob was first on the podcast, and unfortunately, that information is just not available on the internet, so we will never know. But it was a long time ago, and so that's the other thing I want to say about our anniversary. I think I can tell you. Please I can't try. give you the exact date. But it was 
it was either winter, it was the end of 2013, the start of 2014, because I have a very vivid memory of listening to the episode that Rob was on while taking another very long run through South Korea. Just ran the whole country while listening to you guys talk. The podcasts were that long. They were kind of It was like a three and a half hour podcast I'd have to download to my old school iPod for bus rides through Southeast Asia. But I did it anyway. It took up a lot of data, but I did it anyway. But Rob was on sometime winter 2013-14 talking about 424-94. We should just have Rob comment on this. I'm sure he's right here. Rob, when were you first on HF Pod? Thank you for reminding me of that. I was trying to remember which show I talked about, but it was that yeah, Charlotte uh, show, right? Yeah. Where, um, I believe there's a really good Bowie. It was sort of like one of the yes. earliest examples of like type two fish in the, the classic sense. So, yes. uh, in, in my project. So yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on, uh, such a special anniversary episode. I such can't a believe special it's, day. it's been that long. Jeez. Uh, feeling very old. That was a celebrate. That was episode twenty-five, and it was January fifteenth, twenty fourteen. Brian somehow knew that, um, and that was just amazing. Nice job. I, I can go through each of the HF Pod episodes until I started, and then it all becomes a blur to me. But um, to celebrate today, we're all going to do an acapella rendition of "Backwards Down the Number Line." To celebrate <laughs> nine years. We're going to do it in rounds until we get to nine. No, we are. <laughs> we are so happy to have you on, Rob. Um, Rob, as I mentioned here, is on Twitter at FishCrit. And you can also, we're going to be diving into the first two shows of Summer Europe 97. Rob is writing about, as he mentioned here when he joined on, he writes about every single fish show on its 25th anniversary. You started this project like eight or nine years ago with February 3rd, 93. You've been going through show by show by show, which I just want to applaud you for the patience and the ability to do this like <laughs> day after day. As someone who who is a, a relative completist and wants to listen to every show of a tour, I, I definitely like the project speaks to me in a lot of ways, like the the kind of step by step growth and the side pro, you know the side avenues that the band finds themselves down and like the moments of bliss and the moments of like hmm, i don't really know what's going on here that's like one of the best things that comes out of your overall project but you all can find this at fishcrit.substack.com it's an incredible essay source comes right into your email you read it in the morning while you're drinking some coffee throw on a fish show even if you don't want to listen to that show it's just great writing rob is a great ability to share the perspective of where the band is um i'll leave you to say anything more about your uh your 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 essays and um and anything else about what what you're doing uh, documenting fish here yeah yeah it's been i can't believe how long i've been doing this too like i think it's been about 10 years i've been working on this project i didn't always do the 25th anniversary that's only started a couple years ago um when i finally decided that i needed a deadline uh, to actually do every show and write something about every show. I started on Twitter. Uh, I moved from Twitter to Tumblr. I moved from Tumblr to Medium, and now I'm on Substack. So it's also like a history of like what's the most popular internet platform at any given time. So I, I, I'm sure it'll be in like virtual reality on the metaverse by the end <laughs> of this project, if the project ever ends. I mean, if Fish keeps playing shows, uh, I have, uh, you know, 
you know, this month plus 25 years to go still. So, uh, it's, I was going to uh, say 20, 2047 fish is going to be <laughs> that, writing back about that. That's going to be it, wild. It's become my lifetime project in a weird way. And like, uh, it's just, uh, really, you know, uh, surprising to me that so many people want to read these things. This is very much just me writing for myself. Uh, I have to get this, these thoughts out of my brain somehow. Uh, so the fact that I have about a thousand people subscribed to the newsletter is, is amazing. And yeah, it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. I go a little uh, crazy at the end of every tour because uh, <laughs> I don't write these things nearly as far in advance as I probably should. So um, yeah, it's an interesting process, but uh, Hey, when there's a year like 1997, uh, sometimes the essays write themselves. So some some years are easier than others. And I'm really sorry to get into this commitment year. to the bit to just keep doing it. Like I would, <laughs> I'd, get, I'd get bored. I, I just I just couldn't even continue, even pretend to undertake something like that for any amount of time, and certainly not as long as you have. So I think it'll be smooth great. sailing from here on out. Uh, Ninety six okay. was the the hardest test of my resolve, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the the, the rest of the years. decade here uh, is really my sweet spot for fish. And when I saw fish, you know, a lot, uh, so I have some personal things to bring to the table. And uh, they only played 50, 60 shows a year uh, for the rest of the nineties. Whereas, man, ninety four, ninety five, those were long years. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, it's like doing a podcast, you know, once you start doing it, it's fun to start something, but then to actually keep doing it is much harder. <laughs> yeah. So as, as you know, also, um, are, how far in advance do you plan? Cause are there, I, I assume there must've been a point where you like get to a, a certain year or time of year and you're like, Oh sweet. There's no more shows the rest of the year or there's no <laughs> more shows until December or like, are you looking yeah. ahead like a year or are you trying to like take it day by day so you don't get overwhelmed by and, and you plan going. your vacations around it <laughs> <laughs> i wish yeah no i um every time i get like a month or two out from another run of shows i'm like i should really get started on this but the, it's the deadline thing like i, I the, the bradstock essay i posted last week for june 6th i wrote i nibbled at for like a month uh whereas the rest of these i'm writing i have to write in like you know just a few hours, like sometimes the day before it runs. Uh, So I really need that deadline and urgency to actually get these things done. And, you know, I I kind of like also writing it sort of almost in real time and listening to the show in real time because, or the tour in real time, because it gives you more of that feeling of like, you know, show after show after show, this is what it would be like experiencing this, uh, you know, within a month instead of trying to spread it out over a longer period of time. Then it actually happened. And I think, uh, you know, my memory is not that great. So uh, it helps uh, to keep things pretty recent. So I am currently uh, two essays ahead. I have tomorrow's done and I have the 16th done. But uh, yeah, that's that'll be the biggest cushion I have all summer. Is <laughs> <laughs> one thing i'm curious about is you know i've listened to full tours from time to time and like as reading your essay on a daily basis um there are shows that will stick out we were talking about before we went live 10 11 95 was one that immediately stuck out i'd never listened to it you wrote uh you know about it in in your essays as, as you went through october 95 and it was, I was like, I have to hear the show. And, you know, there were moments for me that like stuck out that I, I discovered shows by way of your essay. Have, has it changed like doing this essay and this, these essays in this format show by show, you know, just 
day after day. Has this changed your perspective on fish in any way? And if so, how? Yeah. So a part of the reason why I started doing it this way, like my goal of listening to every show is that I knew that most people experience fish through sort of the, uh, actually uh, it's different now because now we listen to every show the morning after uh, because we can like an hour after the show ends. Um, But in the nineties, you only experienced the history of fish through like the highlights, like the great Mm -hmm. shows that circulated most widely. So you would hear something like the bomb factory And then you would hear, you know, Halloween 95. And then you would hear like the Clifford Ball. Uh, And so there would be these huge jumps between these shows. uh, But you wouldn't hear all the hard work that went on in between those sort of signposts that everybody had. Uh, So that's what I hope to hear through this is like, you know, these things didn't happen overnight. It was like a slow, uh, you know, evolution of the band uh, from era to era. And what I really love hearing is shows like that 10, 11, 95 show where it's almost like a little bit into the future. It's, it's, it's like really strong foreshadowing of what was going to happen later in 95, um, surrounded by shows that don't sound at all like December 95, but here's like this one show where they figured something out and you can almost hear them kind of clicking and being like, we need to work on this. We're going to talk about this for, for these shows today too. Um, but it still takes like a couple months for it to be fully realized. And that's like a really fun thing just to hear their creative process and try and get inside their heads. And that's the thing I love the most about fish is that they're always pushing forward even today. Uh, and so to, to listen show by show, you get to kind of experience, uh, you know, secondhand what it was like for them to be constantly iterating on their sound and evolving. I'm curious, one last question before we jump into these shows. You know, you talk about like the signposts, the like highlight shows and like having all these, you know, a big show like the Bomb Factory and uh, a month later you've got Red Rocks 94. Like these are two shows that were traded heavily in the mid 90s and the late 90s as someone who got into fish during hiatus had to have these shows, but I didn't really have anything in between. Going through this process, and, and I don't know if this you know, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but are there any highlight shows that as you're going through the tour kind of lose their luster a little bit because you're hearing in succession? Can Hmm. you think of any examples of that? That's interesting. I'm a little, I'll I'll cheat a little bit that that's kind of like my, what I'm nervous about for 97. (laughs) Uh, And we'll talk about it because this show has kind of a pretty distinct example, but like, I remember people in 1997 who were seeing a lot of shows complaining that they were very samey, that they played a lot of the same songs, that a lot of the jams sounded very similar. Uh, I am a huge 97 fan. I saw my favorite fish show of all time in December 97. Uh, But I have never done the full 97 run, uh, you know, from top to bottom. I don't know if I've even ever done like just a fall 97 run top to bottom. Uh, So, I'm a little worried now that we're getting into my like favorite zone of fish that uh, it's actually going to lose a little magic because I'm going to hear sort of more similarities between shows that I thought were there. We should probably check in with you in like early next year and see where you are and how you feel about it. Cause I mean, what Brian's describing is totally real. Like uh five, eight is an example of that with some fans, grateful dead. Yes. But with some fans, it turns out it's not, Maybe not the best show of the month. It's a really great show. I'm not 
saying that, not trying to pick fights, but, you know, arguably maybe not. And, uh, but it was so present once it started circulating in the eighties, everybody had it and everybody loved it because it doesn't suck at all. Uh, and then we start getting the rest of those tapes and we're like, well, maybe it's more average than we thought. Right. It's a high <laughs> average, but still, <laughs> um, yeah. Should we get into this show? We should do it. Cause this show lays a lot of the foundation of kind of what we're hinting at here right now. So these two shows, 613 and 61497 from Dublin, Ireland at the SFX center slash theater. I've seen it in both, both ways. Um, really interesting to me that the band opened up their European tour in Dublin. We were talking about this a little bit in our HF pod text thread that, you know, we've all traveled to Dublin from uh, at different times and, the music in that city really overtakes you almost immediately. It's just everywhere. And the idea of fish going to Dublin to debut this completely new sound, these totally new songs that sound in so many ways, they're aligned with the winter tour debuts, the Carini, Rocka William, um, not necessarily Walfredo, but like kind of the oddity nature of Walfredo. But these are songs that are actually going to like stick around with fish as they go forward. And they're songs that are regular uh, uh, performances here to this day. But having them do that in Dublin as opposed to London or as opposed to going to like Berlin or, you know, pick a European city, like having this be the city that they debut all these songs in feels very fitting to me in a lot of cases. Um, kicking things off with 613. Going into the first set here, Rob, what was kind of your big takeaway from this first set and what are some of the highlights for you? Right. So obviously the big sort of headline you see right away when you look at the set list is it's just chock full of debuts, public debuts, I should say, uh, because uh, as I wrote about the the Bradstock show, June 6th, at Brad Sands and Pete Carini's house uh, debuted almost all of this new material something like 15, 16 new songs played at that show. Uh, and I recall, maybe you guys remember too, I recall that tape circulating pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, certainly yeah. by the time they got back to America in July, a lot of people had heard Brad Stock. And that's how we knew the new stuff. It was almost like having a new album uh, mm. in live tape form. Uh, but then here is all the public debuts. They debut about half of them tonight and about the, and the other half the next night in Dublin as well. Uh, so you see what it, I, I didn't count it up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven new originals, two new covers uh, in the encore. Uh, they don't play more than two old songs in a row at any point in the show before playing another new song. Uh, so as I wrote about in my essay today, this is like a super uncompromising show, right? Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they show up in Europe. I think as usual for Fish Europe shows, it was probably more Americans than Irish people <laughs> at the show. Uh, but they did not try and do any sort of like, here's a nice gentle introduction to Fish for the first time we play in Ireland. It is, here is a, a dump of all, you know, half of our new songs uh, for the very first time. Uh, yeah. he, he, Trey was nice enough to stop after a couple of them and, you know, back announce several of the new songs, which is just nice for the tapers trying to, you know, fit it on a exactly. J card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really just get like theme from the bottom as your, which 
is funny to think about because two years prior, that is part of the revolutionary new song group that's coming out in uh, summer 1995. But that's kind of your only familiar sense of fish until you're thrown into Dog Stole Things. You get Beauty My Dreams, Belly Breathes, then Limb by Limb, throwing back to the, the uh, winter tour with Wolfman's Brother and an Extended Jam. Waiting in the Velvet Sea debuting and then Taste, yet another one of these songs that uh, is part of that 95 batch of of debuts. This show, I couldn't help but think about Halloween 13 when I was listening to this show. Just in the sense that, like you're saying, Rob, there's something that's so uncompromising about this. It's the band saying, we wrote all these new songs. We are excited about them. You are all going to hear them over the next two nights. And if you're a fan who's doing a bunch of shows on the next on the rest of the tour throughout Europe that summer, this is what you're preparing to hear on a regular basis because it's very very clear that the band is as stoked as possible to play these songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is like uh, we'll we'll get into it I think, but they used Europe as sort of their laboratory away from the spotlight of the American crowds to really reinvent themselves in 1997. And it started in the winter with their sort of, you know, two, three week European tour in the winter, but uh, there wasn't a lot of new material in the winter. So this is where that reinvention of the fish sound meets this like flood of new material that Trey and Tom had just written uh, and really like explodes and is what makes this year such a special year. Yeah. The, the sound developed in, in, March, you know, they really kind of break through and, and then here we have it like show up in chalk dust torture and as well as ghost where it's just kind of like this, well, it's kind of funk jamming and they really just lay into it with these new tunes and it's uh, limb by limb doesn't quite go as well as they would later get it. Uh, Wolfman's though is pretty out there and it's it's just a, I, I, I think that the, they know that the fans that are there, the real Amer- the American fans that are there and filling up the audience are big fans and will be forgiving. I think they know that, or at least they're hoping that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's kind of a rowdy tape, too. Um, if you listen, you know, on re-listen or whatever, you could definitely hear a lot of good crowd noise and stuff between songs. Yeah. Uh, but they do give them their money's worth, even if it's, there's a bunch of new songs packed in there. Yeah, the performance is, uh, the, the playing is great, especially the Wolfman's brother, I feel like we should identify from set one. Um, I didn't even really think about it when I pressed play on this show initially, that this is coming, what, technically four shows after the Hamburg version from March 1st, but obviously three months later. Right. That version, the band clearly recognized, they spoke, they spoke about it in the fish book, how they walked off stage that night and were you know, essentially realize, okay, we, we found a new sound. We found a new avenue for this. And so to bring this song out, it's a very, we, we hear it even today. You think back to like summer 2018, they realized that Everything's Right was a great portal for experimentation based on their sound at that time. And then Everything's Right is now played every three or four shows. And they really kind of lean into it when they play it. And you get that here immediately with Wolfman's Brother. I don't want to like, say one version is better than the other but this version definitely felt more in line with later 97 than the one from Hamburg did it's it's really 
It's like silky. It's funky. There's a little bit of synthesizers in it. It's just, it's very different from what we hear three or four months earlier. Rob, what were your immediate takeaways from this version of Wolfman's? Yeah. One of the cool things about the Hamburg Wolfman's from March 1st is that it sounds like, you know, like a lot of the great fish breakthroughs, they kind of like stumbled into it. (laughs) It was like they accidentally discovered this sound that they had been looking for, for I think over a year at this point uh, in an old song, um, which if you remember, they played Wolfman's a little bit in 94 and then they pretty much retired it. Like after hoist, they couldn't really figure out a way to play it live. And that's always fascinated me because now Wolfman's you're going to hear it every three or four shows. It's that's reliable, like rotation song as it gets uh, for fish. Uh, But it was kind of like they wrote a song that was that they weren't ready for yet, <laughs> which is a really interesting yeah. idea. Um, and they weren't ready for it until, you know, March 1st, 1997, when they're playing Wolfman's Brother. And all of a sudden, this sort of democratic jamming that they had been seeking since at least 95, uh, they found it. And uh, like, like one thing I keep thinking of with what changes in terms of their improvisational style is that they move from jamming up like building to a peak to jamming sideways. Uh, and that, that March 1st Wolfman's does that really well. Uh, and you can hear how eager they are to get back and try that again uh, in this version. Cause it's only like six songs into the show. All right, we're playing Wolfman's again. We're going to intentionally now take that jam to the same place we took it in March 1st. So I do think it sounds a little bit less um, serendipitous. It sounds a little more uh, intentional. It's like they've been working on it. Exactly. And it's it's, what I laughed at was that it sounds like, like cow funk fully realized right away. (laughs) Like I've been waiting for this to happen. There's glimpses of it sprinkled as far back as like Albany, the Albany in 95. (laughs) Uh, But then you put on this show first show of proper show of summer 97 fish. And it is like the exact like funk chord progression that Trey will play in you know, dozens of jams for us the year. And they still play today if they just need to like play like a standard fish funk jam. It's that thing where he does three licks in a row and then he changes it in the last time and then they loop it back around again. Uh, so it's great. Uh, but it also feels like, yeah, this has been, they've been woodshedding this and they're bringing it out rather than we fell into this uh, new sound. I like that point about, you know, they wrote a song that they couldn't quite figure out how to play live. So it's like split open and melt. Like they did play it and they played it a lot. And then one day they really understood it. And, um, you know, very different song, very different type of jamming. But here we have it again. Probably not for the last time. Yeah. And as you noted, Rob, the, the, the first of many rip chords into Waiting in the Velvet Sea. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a good point. Um, They're just, they're really well rehearsed. I mean, for a tour opener, it's like really fluid, you know, everything from the, from the start. It's, it's pretty impressive that they kind of like, and some of those songs are more complicated. Limb by Limb, I guess, was a little bit of a, they were trying to figure it out, but it's still like, it's a, it's amazing that they come out of the first show and they're, they're pretty much already there. You know, mm-hmm. one thing I want to ask, I want to pull this from our second segment and I'd, I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this, but um, Rob, I know that you've been, you know, kind of looking into this. We have some information about what the band was doing, but they, they leave Europe in early March, 1997. They play the Flynn theater show at that point. 
they go to Bearsville. They start recording. Um, they start laying down recordings. Uh, Trey and Tom write a number of songs at this point in time. And to your point, RJ, they come back and like they sound in a lot of cases like they're in mid-tour form right out the gates because I don't think that they really took a break in the way that they did in spring 1996 where you know they talk about the idea of Billy Breathes being the band's first chance to really step back takes a take some stock of where they'd come from where they wanted to go next they're kind of just like fully into it at this point in time can you talk a little bit rob about what happens between winter and summer 97 yeah i mean it's maybe like the two most important things for the like rest of the decade for fish basically because they they're so excited about what they were starting to figure out in europe they come back they book bearsville studios without any new material they just go and they just play and it's the first session that will eventually be you know edited and put out as the sick of disc which it's always surprised me how early the sick of disc was recorded because to me it is so much the sound of like 99 2000 fish this like very ambient, very spacey, very minimalist fish. Uh, but they were already recording it uh, in March of 1997, which is really cool. Uh, somewhere in May, uh, Trey and Tom book a, a hotel, it looked like, a farm in upstate Vermont or somewhere in Vermont. I don't know if there's an upstate and downstate Vermont. <laughs> uh, but they hole up at a farm and they start recording demos, uh, which you can hear on the Trampled by Lambs and Pecked by the Dove album. There's a few sessions throughout 97 uh, on that record, but uh, a lot of the demos for the songs we hear in this show and in the next show uh, are on that record. And it is like just a huge sea change in fish songwriting and over the course of those sessions in 97 they're going to basically write every like notable fish song of the next three years uh and you start hearing that here but uh what's really interesting is like how underdeveloped these songs feel uh at bradstock at these shows uh we're I think up to this point, you're used to fish songs. By the time they're actually played on stage, they're these like fully realized, you know, usually tray compositions with like 12 different parts and a jam section goes here. And like, like even theme from the bottom, which is sort of in the newer generation of, of fish songs. By the time they played it in uh, with that show in May 95, uh, it already had this whole like fleshed out thing you know, complicated vocals and everything. A lot of the Trey Tom songs from Spring of 97 are just like a sketch and the demo is like a minute and a half long. And it was up to Fish to take that and make it into a song and to find out where the jam is and to find out what parts need to be edited back and which parts should be extended. Uh, so that's a really cool part of this music too, is like it's, they brought it public, I think earlier than they would normally bring new songs public. And they started tinkering with them in front of an audience in Europe. And I think by both writing more simple songs and, you know, pushing these songs out of the nest a little earlier than they normally would. It helped, it lined up perfectly with like what they wanted to do in terms of changing the rest of their sound, uh, which is really kind of the interesting thing in the show too, is like you look at the set list and you're like, okay, there's, there's a bunch of new songs, but really the most interesting parts of the show are the Wolfman's and the Choctaw's Torture, which both go in like a totally different direction than those songs would have in almost every version up until this point. And that's what's really going to happen a lot in 1997 is old songs start to change too because of this influx of new material and their determination to start, you know, pushing things in a different direction. 
God bless him for the stash in this show, though. It is a, a nice, solid, a little bit out there stash, but also familiar ground for, yeah. you know, the regular fans. You know, God help all the Irish folks that didn't know what the hell they were getting into to begin with. Because they were, <laughs> if they even hung into the second set, they were in trouble but with a stash mazed open. But, um, yeah, I really like that stash. It's, I mean, the the new material, there was, I think, 20 new songs. Some of them are covers in the two-week period between this and when they go back to the U.S. And the, I don't know. I think, like, the what you're saying, Rob, about the the vehicles for the jamming early on were, were the older songs. And that kind of continued throughout the year. But now we associate, like, new improv with new material much more directly, you know? And... I don't know. I've listened to so much 97 and I think it's so amazing, but I, we probably haven't talked that much about how new material had influenced just whether it's just like opening more creative paths or whatever, whatever it is, not necessarily directly because of the songs themselves, but it's pretty amazing that there were like 20 new songs that they played in two weeks, you know, and including covers of course, but it just that obviously they were in a period of like being pretty open creatively at that point. You know, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think about, you said something, Rob, about like this, these songs are sketches in a way that you wouldn't necessarily get in previous years where, you know, the Hoist songs don't come out until they're fully written, recorded, they're prepared to go live. The Billy Breathe songs that come out in 95, there's still some evolution that goes with a lot of those songs, but for the most part, they're pretty much completed songs with full ideas when they hit the stage in Lowell and then later in the summer tour. I almost feel like the sketches aspect to what you're talking about, like it's, it's what complements Wolfman's and Chalk Dust Torture in these shows where it's almost them looking back then at their older songs and saying, what else is there for these songs? Like Wolfman's Brothers is a song that I don't necessarily – want to say that it was like a failure when the song like it just it didn't work it didn't totally work on stage and there's a reason why it kind of went away chalk dust torture had been probably the most reliable fish song throughout the 1990s to this point in time and rather than going in its typical direction it's played late in the second set falls into a funk jam and then serves as the debut of what will become one of the biggest fish songs going forward it's kind of it's it's crazy to me that this is how Ghost emerges to the to the world, but it's also crazy to think about like this idea that Ghost is two three years away from being what we really think about Ghost is Ghost as at this point in time, and it comes out of a Chakta's torture that kind of allows itself to just fall apart into a totally new musical idea. There's there's just so much happening here in in a way that is happening in the moment and is going to influence them for the next month and next months and then next years to come yeah just one more thing about that is that like the winter 97 tour was really interesting to me because they brought in a lot of new material but it's mostly covers uh or it's uh walfredo and rock and william which or carini i guess pops up in the tour tour which are like i mean they're 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 fun songs and carini has turned into like a a huge thing but it was like it was a total gimmick it was like this is how we're going to create a new sound. We're going to rotate instruments and we're all going to play them very badly, <laughs> except Mike, who is good at every instrument. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and the other interesting thing about that tour is that you can hear them really pushing to create a new sound through the jams on their older songs and not getting there. 
and I think they just could not get out of the path that uh, they were used to playing in a song like David Bowie, in a song like Tweezer. They like couldn't, you know, forget their old habits and do something totally new until they had this like flood of new material to push them out of their comfort zone. So the interesting thing with Chalk Dust and that it leads into Ghost is that it's almost like the Ghost Jam is played before Ghost starts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like Ghost infected the song before it. Uh, and it's a very typical like Ghost Funk Jam in Chalk Dust that leads into Ghost. And then the actual Ghost Jam is less what we think of as a ghost jam today, I think. Uh, so that's what I mean, where it's like these two things colliding. They needed the new material to just sort of elbow them out of the old way of doing things. And I mean, we sh- another thing to bring up here is they brought in all these new songs and simultaneously retired a bunch of old songs temporarily. Uh, and there were a lot of things. That's what my essay in three days from now is about, is a, a lot of missing songs uh, in summer 97. Yeah, Tweezer's not going to be played until the Gorge, right? Right. Tweezer is yeah. gone for its longest gap ever, which I think is yeah. like 30-some shows. So sad. Um, I do want to say just quickly about this venue, because it was it was SFX, as you said, Brian. In 82, U2 played three shows there when they released War, and it, it was just everyone will be excited to know that in 2006 it was demolished to make way for 41 apartments. So people who live there now are feeling the, the vibes, but it, you know, everyone played there from like U2 to, I mean, every, every band that came through, through Europe, especially like a lot of serious bands like that put on insane shows like Fugazi and Iron Maiden and, you know, bands like that. And I wonder, I guess it was a standing capacity only venue. Um, and I just wonder if like that kind of venue speak, speaks to where they were at the time or, or if it was just like if they were at the Royal Albert Hall first with this with the same shows have happened. I don't know, Rob, yeah. but what you think, like how much influence like a venue with a lot of history and a lot of kind of serious rock and roll happening, you know, affects something like this. Yeah. Well, you you anticipated what tomorrow's essay is about. And we can maybe jump over to the June 14th show (laughs) a little bit, too, while we're talking about this. But like the other thing that is, I think, notable in 97 is that it takes until that Virginia Beach show in July to actually play like a full fish size venue. Right. So they Mm. and they play a lot of shows in Europe in the winter tour, in the summer tour, they play Bradstock, they play the Flynn Theater, they play all these like really tiny venues. Royal Albert Hall, I figured out, is probably, I mean, they play some festivals in Europe, so they played to some big crowds in summer 97, I should say, but those are kind of weird shows. Um, Royal Albert Hall is the like largest fish-only show that they'll play until they come back to America, and even that I was reading the other day was not sold out. It holds about 5,000 people, but they said like, you know, it was your tickets were uh, in the bushes outside sort of show. Uh, Anybody could walk in and see them pretty much. Um, So they had all this time out of the spotlight, as I mentioned, to develop these songs. But I think they also used that, I think in the past, when Fish would play a theater of this size, they would try to play a show bigger than the venue and cram it into a small space. So you get a lot of 94 shows where they're still playing theaters, but they're playing with like the volume and the intensity of Madison Square Garden. And I didn't see them in 94, but I can only imagine that it was just like this overwhelming experience to hear them like rip into run like an antelope 
in like a 2000 person old theater. Uh, they don't do that in Europe. These shows are way mellower. I think they're uh, playing down a little bit to the venue size uh, because yep. this new style they're trying to build out is a little more subtle. Uh, it's not quieter necessarily, though sometimes it can be. The next show, that June 14th show, has a lot of quiet songs, not just the new songs, but also the older songs they choose to play. Uh, and so I think it, it's a different sort of, it's a shift in focus for Fish. Like rather than we're going to go back to these small venues and you know blow people away, let's use these small venues as a way to experiment with texture, experiment with this sort of sideways jamming I was talking about, uh, exper uh, experiment with dynamics a little bit more within our improv, uh, more thoughtfully than just doing an acapella song on mics, you know, like let's actually see how quiet we can get. Let's do some stop start type jamming. Let's do that sort of stuff that is uh, exciting. It's gonna be exciting to see that translate then back to giant venues when they come back to the United States. But for now, it's kind of like we're going we're gonna to play like at a more hushed level. Yeah, I think straight to your point, like they opened on the 16th at Royal Albert Hall with Squirming Coil. That's, right. you know, it, it's kind of theater appropriate. It's not the mm -hmm. same band that we were seeing in the States. Uh, let me rephrase that. It's not the same kind of like in-your-face energy that we were seeing in the States in the years prior. And soon after this, I guess, too. I mean, I always think about this, the, the idea of reaching the level of success that they reached in 95 and then obviously playing the Clifford Ball in 96. Say what you will about the music in 1996. You know, they're showcasing an ability to play venues that would have seemed unrealistic three years earlier. But there was a lot of pressure that came along with that. And I always wonder, like, at this tour, is this as relaxed as you could have ever found fish they're off the grid. Nobody's really thinking about them. Nobody's really stressing out on a day-to-day -day basis about what they're playing and they kind of can just do whatever they want. But all the while, at least based on the evidence from the music that they're playing, they're going, they're undergoing these changes in a really dramatic way. I'm curious your guys thoughts of like, is this the ideal setting for a musician of, of, of their, of their, uh, their standing? I kind of want to add to that question, too, is, you know, a lot of times when an American band is doing like their own headlining tour in Europe, and this is effectively their first headlining tour in Europe, the others, you know, have been filling in between opening gigs and stuff. Uh, are they, are they, is there a lot of record label stuff happening for them, too? Uh, is this the tour where they put out the compilation um, that has like the Studio Strange design? Uh, because they did oh, that in uh, Europe only stash. comp. Yeah. yeah that um, is, uh, I think they came out summer 96. Well, that was 96. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just wondered, like, are they, you know, having to meet with the European Warners guys and doing that kind of <laughs> stuff backstage? And is that in any play? Because it doesn't show at all in, as Brian is talking about, and as you're, you, Rob, are talking about, in the kind of way they're performing. They're not, they don't, seem to reveal any signs of that kind of pressure. Yeah. Well, I, I would go back to my characterization of this tour, at least from the beginning, as confrontational. And <laughs> it, it also speaks to like, um, so Bittersweet Motel, the footage is cut up so non-chronologically, it's hard to tell <laughs> if you're in summer 97 or summer 98, the Europe footage. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and it's also, you know, edited by 
you know, Todd Phillips who had his own agenda. Uh, but they're, they're kind of pricks in that show or like <laughs> in, in that era, like the Europe stuff is that's like Trey in the gun shop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like fish and Trey with his sunglasses on talking about how people don't pay them to see, don't want to see them hit the changes. Like <laughs> they are like uh, uh, becoming, they're getting into this era where they are, sort of legitimate asshole rock stars, right? Yeah. Uh, where, and it's such a difference from summer 96, where they made this very strange decision to consciously, after like conquering the world at the end of 1995, conquering the United States at the end of 95, they made this, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, self-sacrificing decision to not only go to Europe where nobody had ever heard of them, but to open <laughs> for another band uh, and play these short, like intro to fish sets and basically get whistled at by, you know, angry Santana fans <laughs> for an entire they month. Bring the vacuum out in front of <laughs> Santana fans, you know, they're, they're like doing stadium this on purpose, in Europe. you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a hilarious tour. It, it almost, I mean, that was one of the tougher ones to write essays through because I was writing about these 45-minute sets that didn't really do anything. But they were, like, so polite, right? They're, like, there and they're, like, here, we're going to play, like, you know, six songs that we think you'll like uh, about Fish. Uh, and then here we are a year later and they're, like, we're not even going to play songs you, you know, can buy on a record. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're going to play all our new material. We're going to experiment live on stage. Uh, and, like, you're just going to have to deal with it. And it's like the, the, the tray you see, at least, in Bittersweet Motel, it definitely lines up with that, where it's kind of like, uh, if they're meeting with record executives, they're, they're pranking them, right? They're, and right. Uh, the other thing I found is, you know, Kevin Shapiro on the, on the fish.com site, it's from the old fish.com, so it's kind of hard to find on the new site, but they have the This Month in Fish History oh, yeah. mm -hmm. essays that Kevin wrote. And the June 97 one is really entertaining because like half of it is about weird bets they made with Brad Sands to do yeah. crazy slash illegal slash dangerous things uh, as they're going across Europe. So uh, I think awesome. you could say that. that Fish is at ease uh, at this point, this time through uh, Europe and even being, you know, a little bit of like the ugly Americans. Uh, well, you know, it's also 25 years after the dead went to Europe and toted out a ton of unknown material and mm -hmm. you know fans liked it and then went to a record store couldn't buy the songs and uh interesting parallel not on i, I will I say imagine. i will say that there are a couple stories from people who were at those some of those 97 summer shows where they had like very nice and fun and memorable interactions with the band but <laughs> maybe that's like on the i guess like you said the todd phillips thing had it he had, you know didn't make a agenda. good movie but Megan, Megan has told a story about her experience at one of these summer 97 shows and, and hanging out with the band and that everyone was like having a great time and very lovely. I'm sure it was both, but, but it's totally, yeah. I agree. Totally. I mean, they're like, they don't give a shit. I mean, they're not playing for European fans or new fans. It doesn't seem like they're just, like you said in the essay today, I think they're just playing for themselves. Right. <laughs> right. And they're just playing fish. And they're going to come back to the U.S. and do the same thing. And it's going to piss yeah. off a lot of Fish fans here, too, which yeah. is exciting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's, you know, there's there's this perception around Fish, especially in the 1990s, as, you know, happy hippies playing jam music that nobody actually is listening to. Nobody's, you know, everyone's just happy at the show because they're way too high. And, like, you know, nobody's actually thinking about the music that's being played. And the reality is, like, across two years, Fish is basically playing music that, 
I want to say is offensive to their fans, but is like really deliberately challenging their fans. If you think about June 95 and June 1997, it's almost like they're saying, thank you for funding this, but like, this is an art project that we are going to just see what happens and you're either going to like it or you're you're not going to, but we have enough faith that like, we'll keep enough people coming back night after night after night, but don't, don't expect us to please you. Like this is, which about, is, this is more about, which is like, that is kind of a direct parallel with Europe 72. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was like a, it was like an experimental art project, which is great. Um, before we keep going, I just have to say there's a guy uh, watching and uh, who reached out earlier today on Twitter, Brian Eagle, who did, I think all of this um, tour and he sent some pictures. Can I just share them quickly before I, Please, Please. Before I forget. Yeah. Um, here, let me put this on the screen while I figure out how to do this. Um, so, okay, here we go. Um, these are some downloads that I that he sent. So, have you guys seen this? Can you guys see anything? I can yes, see we can some see really it. good file names. Very <laughs> That's my con all that shit. Okay, that's not gonna work. Hold on, let me see if I can do this. Um I don't have anything he he sent a bunch of stuff, but um I don't know if he sent anything from here's this. So There it is. This was the twenty second of June. Oh, cool. Um I think there's some stuff from Royal Albert Hall, um, which is here. Um, all right, this is getting too burdensome. Sorry, guys. But um, I wanted to show you this because there was one. Um, the Royal Albert Hall, by the way, on the, on Fishnet, which I know we're not talking about it yet, but I think it might be the lowest rated fish show I've ever seen on, on Fishnet. <laughs> wow. It's like 2.8 <laughs> like or something, um, oh, which yeah. is crazy. 2.964. But only and 56 <laughs> ratings, and that's the problem. It's like that's, I mean, that's part of the problem. But I'm, the last thing I want to show you, have you guys seen this T-shirt before? Maybe this is like a T-shirt that everyone has seen. Yeah. I think I've seen yeah. this around. That's yeah. like the summer 97 shirt. Um, anyway, thanks, Brian, Story for sharing shirt. these pictures. Thank you, Brian. If you get more, send them um, ticket stubs and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Send them to me so, so I can use them in the essays, because uh, <laughs> tours are the hardest ones to find photos for any sort of picture documentation yeah, yeah actually yeah that's a good call and and brian also told me about a video that i thought i had known about but then when i clicked on it i had not seen it before which is a a video from the 622 festival have you guys seen that oh cool no i, I think know. that circulates um, on yeah. youtube it's, it's on like youtube a pro yeah, shot. i just i, I did yeah, it's like a pro shot video. i had not i had not seen that before um I, but Rob, I will I will give you Brian's contact info in case you want to get more stuff from him. But sorry to interrupt, nice. guys. I just wanted to share that stuff. No, that's cool. Beautiful. Thank you, Brian. Let's talk quickly about this show because this show gives us one, two, three, four, five, six more debuts for the right. overall tour. Plus they um, play uh, Limb by Limb and Dog Stole Things again. <laughs> Yes. Even though they're yes. in the same city at the same venue. Still. <laughs> I, I love that those are the two songs that they played them at the first four shows. All four of the first four shows. Wow. Like Limb by Limb I can get, but Dog Stole Things? The, the only thing I can think of is that it's a, like, as I wrote today, it's kind of like My Soul. It's sort of like a good easy mm -hmm. warm-up like jam. But uh, yeah, it, a little misleading that those are the heavy rotation songs to start. Yeah, When we get three ballads... And two songs, which one of which Bye Bye Foot will be played like four more times before disappearing until 2019. And as Fish is wont to do here now in 
this whatever era we're in, late fish, I don't know, you know, where, where we're at in the late 2010s, early 2020s, they're like digging in the trenches of their back catalog. Songs like Bye Bye Foot and So To Bed are Waking returning. Waking Up is, is due. Is that where you're trying to Waking Up maybe due. Beautiful little song. But um, we get Dirt early on. We get Twist and Piper to open up set two, which is just wild to think about those songs being Summer 97 debuts because they won't be on an album until Farmhouse. And in many cases, like especially Twist, won't really like figure out what its structure is for another year or two. Piper is going to kind of just be like this gasp of noise and sound. And then it will fade away until it has that great version at palace and will have great versions throughout 98. Um, saw it again, kind of in the spirit of what we got in the winter tour. Um, what are your guys thoughts on this overall show and how, how do you hear it in comparison to the tour opener? Yeah, as I, already sort of showed my hand like I, i'm gonna talk about how it was sort of a quiet show in a weird way um a lot of these ballads you know waking up this might be the only waking up is there one more this is unless uh, you count bradstock this is it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and dirt and bye bye foot i mean even the old songs they choose to play they play waste you know, they play yeah. uh, talk, Caspi they play Caspian. when the circus comes, they play Caspian. Really beautiful waste in this show, actually. I don't say that often, but a uh, really great waste uh, guitar solo. So it does feel like sort of, you know, I, I try to like put myself uh, in the headspace. Now we know that Twist and Piper are going to become, you know, staples, you know, yeah. arena rock, fish, staples that sound huge and typically go into a big jam. Uh, but if you came into the show cold, having never heard these songs before, would you have anticipated that fish would, you know, become what they became in December 97? And I don't think you would. I think mm -hmm. you would think that they were on the same trajectory they were at from like hoist through Billy Breeze, which was actually getting quieter. Uh, it's still psychedelic and still weird, uh, but, you know, they were playing acoustic mini sets in 96. Uh, they had kind of backed off this, like, big, overblown, heavy rock sound of 1995 into 1996. So I, if you were playing the, uh, you know, Prophecy Game with Fish after hearing these first two shows, you would probably say, oh, it's going to be another move towards a sort of quiet, more gentle fish, uh, which is not what we got at all. Uh, but like Twist Piper in this show, both of them, they, they sound small. They sound cozy. They sound very like they're kind of mid-tempo. They're very simple songs again. They're basically just four chords played over and over again in both of those songs. Yeah. Piper is just an experiment in like, you know, slow to fast dynamics uh, mm -hmm. that they 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 do it in five minutes and it's over. It, it's yeah. not going to turn into this like 20 minute long exploration of that principle. Um, so it's really fast. This is like the, the, the uh, misdirection show. I feel like in a lot of ways, hmm. where it's like, you think fish is going this way, uh, but actually, no, we're going to go this way. Like the, the real secret here is how we play cavern of all songs. <laughs> Great. Uh, that's the song for this night, like Chalk Dust the previous night, where all of a sudden Cavern, which they played the same way, you know, 200 times at this point, uh, it sounds like the Island Tour Cavern. It just turns into this like slow uh, boogie funk jam. Uh, and yeah, it's like, OK, actually, this is what the rest of 97 is going to sound like, uh, but we don't know it yet.
Uh, shout out to the David Bowie, though, which is a pretty solid, high-energy, ripping Bowie. And I think that fuels the cavern. Like, they, they come out of that, and they're like, all right, cavern, cavern rocks, and then they draw that out. And uh, and a, I think better kind of example of that jamming than what we had in Chalk Dust, because I feel like that one is a little um, sparse, mm-hmm. comparatively. Yeah. This cavern has a groove that is, it feels like solid. November 97 in a lot of cases when I hear it. I admit I had no idea there was another funky cavern after like the Island tour. I thought was the only time that they ever ended up. And I I figured that was by accident just based on the jamming. And then to listen to this show, I kind of went in blind. I didn't listen. I didn't read any notes about it. I didn't even look at the times. I just, you know, get to cavern and suddenly we're in a jam session again. I was really blown away, but it's really interesting to think about, you know, you're talking about Twist and Piper because these are two songs that are going to be on Farmhouse together. They're going to be paired and setless in a lot of cases going forward. But like you talk about the, you know, the, the fact that they're kind of throwing you off the scent of where the band is going. Like Twist is kind of at its heart, just a blues song similar to Dog Stole Things, but it has this underbelly of psychedelic music that like three years to the date from its debut, it's going to be the Fukuoka version. That is (laughs) one of the strongest fish jams of all time. One of the best interpretations of twist of all time, a 34 minute song for all intents and purposes. Piper by November is going to be stretched out at the palace show. The uh, Island tour version is going to take that idea of dynamics to complete polar opposite of what you would hear at the palace and throughout summer 98 they're going to really explore just like what are the textures beneath a song like piper it really is like this window into kind of the brian eno experimentation that's going to happen a year from now it's just wild to hear these songs that they're just a nugget of an idea and you're absolutely right the the perception in the moment had to be acoustic mini sets are coming back again um there's no compositions that are being debuted right now. It's just kind of a song idea, but that in and of itself is really what's going to open the door for the band to experiment and explore throughout the remainder of this year and really throughout the 1.0 era. I have to give a shout out really quick as we were talking about show ratings and we're contractually obligated to mention Vegas 04 at least once in the podcast. I was I'm on the list. <laughs> first night of Vegas 04 is rated a bit lower than the Royal Albert Hall at 2.02, which I'll tell you, yeah. I may be the only person out there. I cannot wait until Rob has to cover oh Vegas 04 and fish essays. I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. Maybe There's I can break no... up the band all over again. <laughs> in, in tribute to Jesse, yeah. Just write that one. Man, break up show. your Substack or something. <laughs> um, I mean, anything be else notable in, from these shows that you guys want to? In 2029, there's going to be no Substack. I mean, just, <laughs> no, he will know. have moved on to whatever metaverse yeah, thing. Like we'll said, all be able to walk in and, and yeah. experience the show in his. It's, it's going to be like a Dire Straits, you know, uh, version of Rocky <laughs> 3D version of me, uh, talking about the show. Um, I'll subscribe. Uh, to ben Goodrich, that. we are there for that 10 part podcast on Vegas 04. Oh, I'm no, there man. for it. Or, I'm here for it. I may help with it, but we'll see. You're going to be One thing I want to mention. producer and sole guest. <clears throat> One thing I want to say about these shows, and I'm kind of, uh, this is probably what I'm going to write about for uh, one of these essays I haven't written yet. 
And I'm interested in you guys' thoughts is um, big changes in Fish's sound usually result from changes in gear. And I'm not a big gearhead. I have to ask people like Trey's guitar rig uh, for for help or, uh, you know, uh, Bubba on this day and Drums in Space walked me through pages, rig changes and things like that. Um, but there's some pretty notable gear changes that I'm still sort of sussing out the effect of uh, in Summer 97. The biggest one and the most obvious one and the one I'm happiest about. No mini kit. Trey finally got rid of the mini kit, unless he just hasn't touched it yet. And I haven't heard it yet, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's gone. And that was a huge thing for finally realizing this full band jamming that they'd been in pursuit of for so long. Cause Trey had it yep. in his head that the only way they could do democratic jamming was for him to put away his guitar and just go dunk, chick, dunk, chick for like five minutes in the middle of every jam. Um, so finally they gave up on that. Great. Uh, but uh, some other things I've been hearing is Trey using loops in sort of the modern Trey way much more often, of course, he had his digital delay loop and there you hear jams of that, but doing it in more of like a droney fashion. Um, Mike using, and I, I need to find a mic expert to tell me what this is, but using that like synth bass sound, I don't think it's the floor pedals yet. I think those came a little later, but uh, using like a very, very synth bassy sound in a lot of jams. Um, and then Paige of finally moving to the clavinet uh, as more than just a novelty, like as a go-to for jams. And also, like, I forget which synthesizer he started using more often at this time, but there's a lot of synth and a lot of clavinet in these jams. And that has just totally changed the entire flavor of what their improv sounds like. It, it's, it's a good point. It, yeah. What what are your thoughts on it, RJ? Well, no, I just I hadn't really thought about it that much because like the wah sound is really all I think about with '97. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, even it's more complicated than that. But in my simple brain, that's what it that's what it is equated to. Because now, like, you look between Mexico and MSG, Trey like got like five new somethings. <laughs> unplugged a couple other things. It's like it, the changes happen. I mean, I guess maybe that's like the what's that software? What's that microchip law? Moore's law or something. What's the thing oh, yeah. where things get exponentially more complicated, right? I feel like that's how Trey's rig has gotten, you know, <laughs> yeah, a bit. Totally. Yeah. There's a, a it's great and interesting Instagram account, uh, but Trey's, no, I, I'm going to get it wrong. It's basically focuses on Trey's rig from 99 and it is a thousand times simpler than the stuff he has nowadays. And not just because he's got this powerful controller, but I mean, he's just got just, a fraction of the stuff I was listening to, I think it was during the chalk dust jam and I was kind of listening to the difference in the way they played the funk, if you will, the cow funk or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of the real, like Trey lays back and comps a bit. Page goes up to the club, but I think it's really all about Mike's slow funk bass sound. Even Fishman is playing a lot busier than he will in subsequent months on these first couple of shows and those kind of funk vamps. Um, so that I think I wouldn't say that Mike is driving it, but Mike is the one who's most centered on what funk is. Um, and it goes back probably to that, that there's this quote, I think I, I'm sure I brought it up on here before where he talks about seeing Bootsy Collins in new Orleans and understanding, you know, the complexity of slow, funk uh, in a way he never had before 
And you can really hear that understanding in his playing on this stuff. And everybody else kind of gets closer and closer to that as this year goes on. It kind of, it's one of the hardest things for Fish is playing slow, yeah. especially this era of Fish. Um, yeah, they that was that was a big uh, bridge to cross for them, I think. So what they call a sea change, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting to me because you talk about technology change, and it reminds me of um, like when you talk about the mini kit and the the goals behind it and and the challenges that it created from a jamming standpoint. It reminds me of 2016 when Trey would. Thank you, RJ. We will see you soon. When Trey would put down his guitar in the middle of a jam and run behind Fishman's kit and play the Marimba <laughs> Lumina yeah. for uh, you know five give, minutes or so, give me flashbacks. Right, <laughs> and, and it like the 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 nice thing about the Marimba Lumina is it, it adds elements of melody which the drum kit does not but um there are not a lot of marimba lumina jams from summer 2016 that i would recommend to anyone out there um i remember seeing december 16 i was at the msg run and i think it's piper turns into basically a drums jam where they're all behind fishman's kit and they're playing around with the lumina it was fun but it was definitely it, it felt similar to what you wrote about last November with the fall 96 jams where there felt like there was a dead end. Like, okay, mm-hmm. there's no other direction. There's no, nothing else that we can really find out of this. This is the jamming sound right now. And I think about then in advance of that summer 2021, you know, where Trey pulls out this uh, synthesizer pedal and mm-hmm. it inspires page to move over his synthesizers. And suddenly technology has unveiled this totally new sound for the band in a way that's almost unexpected, but also part of the evolution. And I, I feel like it's rare that we find a period where you have the band kind of hitting their head against the wall, trying to figure out what is next, what is next and doing the same thing over and over again. And not necessarily working um, though. There are some, the runaway gym from new year's Eve 95, for example, like great moment where the mini kit actually, I, I, I think benefits the jam overall, but like you have this technology, kind of pushing the band in one direction and then they change the technology and it almost overnight changes the sound of the band. And, and suddenly what was producing dead ends is now producing open avenues and open ideas that nobody would have predicted even two or three months ahead of time. You know, even, even in the winter tour, I don't think people would have anticipated the kind of jamming that we were hearing right out the gates here. Mm. Yeah. I almost think the, um, I'm not a, mini kit hater but i almost think the rotation jamming that they did in fall 95 might be even better example of like they're trying to throw something at the wall and this is not there's not a way out um it did make some interesting sounds but it was other than mallory in uh in philly uh there's not really a path or a destination that you know they could really get to other than to just go back to where they started and try Mm -hmm. a new song but here they, there's a door open, it seems. Yeah, that's like to circle back to what we were talking about at the top. That's what's so fulfilling about this project is that I've heard all these dead ends now, yeah. like uh, in 1996 and, you know, even some in 1995. Like I've been listening for a year and a half to every show of them striving for, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a new fish sound. Like where do you go when you've become 
the fish of New Year's Eve 1995. Where do you go next? Uh, and it took an entire year and change to figure that out. And they tried a lot of things that didn't work. And those are really fascinating to hear too. Uh, and now we're uh, now I can you know get into the the fruits of all that labor uh, and really get into the good stuff here. So I'm I'm excited. Well, I want to pull up a question that came in earlier in the show. Um, maybe a good way to bring this all around. Kevin Hogan asked, is the jump that they made as a band bigger from fall 96 to Europe, winter 97 or from winter Europe to summer Europe? What are, what are your guys thoughts on this? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I kind of think that it might be the 96 to 97, but it's hard to say they kind of, smear along like there's no line and it's not like they land in Europe in winter and it's egregiously different it's just mm -hmm. there's some like like you said earlier you know there's a couple new songs but they're weird songs and you know rely on like group writing and those gimmicks that didn't completely pan out other than Carini being awesome um, <laughs> and it is through the course of that tour that they really make the breakthrough and make the change and arguably they're picking up where they where they left off when they hit the ground in in june except for all of the work that they've done off stage so that they're really ready to go so i i might go the winter to summer but i'm not sure i even believe my own answer yeah <clears throat> i think the jump from fall to winter is is bigger probably and i think I wrote about this in one of the winter 97 essays that by the end of 96, it's almost like palpable how frustrated they are um, because I think they know what they want to do. I think they know, especially after Halloween, they have a better idea of like, here's the direction we want to go. Uh, but they had booked a very large and long fall winter 96 tour ending up in a holiday run playing, you know, very large arenas. Uh, and they felt like they couldn't experiment in the way that they end up doing in Europe in 1997 at like New Year's Eve 96 in whatever the, that Boston arena is called, the terrible Boston arena. Um, Fleet Center, was it? The Fleet Center, right. Fleet Center, now now the TD Garden, because right, they, right. they had to add Garden back in. And then <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I wrote about how, you know, I think what the winter tour starts in February, so it's only like six weeks after New Year's Eve 96. Yeah, really so wild how quickly it comes on the heels. Hit yeah. the ground in November, and they were like, you know what, book Europe we got to go to Europe in the spring. Exactly. It's like they get to like November 3rd and they're like, this isn't, this isn't where we want it. <laughs> right. We're not going to be able to, to do, you know, this in the spectrum. <laughs> right. Yeah. We need, we need to go back to clubs in Europe to do this, but uh, it's night and day uh, that first February 97 show and New Year's Eve 96. They just sound like a totally different band. They even look like a different band. Like this is yeah. where Fishman stops wearing the dress. Uh, yeah. They all grow beards. Like <laughs> it's like they like reinvented themselves, you know, Fish just physically. Putting on airs, wearing a suit. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I, uh, I got, I found a photo of the Royal Albert Hall show and it has the, uh, 
the coat rack behind the drums. I forgot about that. The era of Fish wearing a three-piece suit and then hanging up his jacket on a coat rack <laughs> to play. Like, what a weird piece totally. of fishy theater that they would do. Um, but yeah, and then, so in that way, uh, despite the new influx of material, I think uh, summer is kind of picks up where winter 97 left off. Uh, there's more continuity there. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with you on the fall to winter. And I really just think in terms of uh, February 17th uh, from Amsterdam, like that set could not have been played six weeks earlier, seven mm-hmm. weeks earlier. And the idea that Fish would play that set based on what you had heard throughout December 1995, throughout 1996, that's the moment where it sounds like a completely different band. And it's it's the interesting nature to kind of loop back around to your essays is – that show happens and that's the show most fans go to when they think of that or slip sits you past the three, one show, but everything around that you wrote about this in the winter. It's, it's that one step forward, two steps back. There's shows right around two seventeen that don't necessarily hint at what is about to come in the next show or what just happened the show prior. And so you hear this band kind of on edge of where exactly are we going but that show to me is just such a shocking change of where they had been. And that's where you suddenly hear the click of, okay, we kind of know, like we, we know that this is doable. It was doable in Amsterdam. Is it doable throughout other parts of Europe? But, you know, as they're listening back to the tour, once they get back to the States, as they, you know, prep the slip stitch and pass album, they, they, they go to Bearsville. They, they spend the spring basically saying that sound that we just played, that's what we're hooked on. And that's what we're going to bring to summer that said, and we you know we won't get into it here, but like, man, there are some weird shows to come here in <laughs> uh, summer Europe, 97, um, which leads me to my last question. I don't want to get you too far away. I know that Rob, you're going step by step through this tour, but does anyone have a show that they would recommend? Because we won't touch on Summer 97 here or Europe 97 for some time on this podcast. But is there any show that anyone would recommend listeners checking out um, to kind of get a better sense of what this is? I know my answer, but I'm curious your guys'. Um, one I listened to just this morning for the first time I think ever is uh, June 20th, 1997. Mm-hmm. I believe it's is it in uh, the Czech Republic. I think it's, I think that's Prague. Yeah. Uh, very strange show. Really weird first set. Um, to the point where like, you know, you're in for it because the second track is one that is just labeled jam. Jam. (laughs) So it's, it's, and it's pretty much a continuous first set. It's taste into jam, into cities, into horn, into eight love funny. Maybe the only eight love funny that they play publicly. It's at the, there's a couple more there's one at alpine later that summer but oh, okay um, right, it's, right. It, it, it disappeared by the end of the summer yeah right into limb by limb which i don't think is finished into i don't care into run like an antelope uh almost like a japan 2000 sort of feel to it yeah. where it just feels like you know anything's on the table just a very spacey weird show um I, I was really excited to find it actually. Like it does not sound cow funky at all. It is like, this is just us making weird, bizarre music and playing some of our strangest new material. Uh, it is uh, definitely one to hear. If you think all of summer 97 sounds the same. 
It's funny. I have one that also kind of sticks out sore thumb-like, but in a different way. And it's the uh, Le Transbordeur show, the Lyon France show, where uh, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones join in. And they uh, shout out to, uh, isn't that the one they shout out to Pierre a bunch? I get that one confused. Um, It's just a fun, fun show. And uh, it's not, yeah, it's not a deep in the cow funk kind of thing either, but it's a great, it's a great listen. Yeah, I love that show as well. I, I I always go to seven ten ninety seven from Marseille, which is one of the strangest fish shows I've ever heard. Uh, on paper, it sounds like nothing like what it sounds musically, but it's set one is dog stole things limb by limb ginseng, then bathtub gin goes into llama, which is unfinished, which goes into waiting in the velvet sea, and then there's a jam. You get Olivia's pool. The second set is. 2001 into Julius, into Magia, Yamar into Ghost, into Take Me to the River, and the encore is Funky Bitch with members of the Sun Seals band. Um, the jam in the set one comes out of Wait in the Velvet Sea and then ends up in Lizards at some point. It's, it's the most free-flowing fish show within a set list that you look at it on paper and you're like, I don't really need to listen to that. And then you listen to it and it's there. It's one of those shows where it's like, where does one song end versus one song begin? And they're just kind of throwing everything at the wall. And to think that 11 days from now, they're going to play at an amphitheater in Virginia beach to open their summer tour and all this anticipation. People haven't seen fish in the flesh unless they flew over to Europe for at least seven months at this point in time. And they're just kind of in the south of France, just being like, "Whatever, let's just let's just see what happens." And yeah. it's it's a wild show. So I mean, I, I think that all of this should give listeners out there a hint that this is a tour. If you have not explored it, definitely go ahead and dive into it. And no better way to do so than to subscribe to Fish Essays, fishcrit.substack.com. Check out what Rob has been writing and will be writing about Fish's summer European tour um, and follow along with uh, listening to these because reading your essays and f- and listening to snippets or, or full sets of shows I've never heard before is a, a true pleasure in uh, this digital age where we're just bombarded with TikToks and Instagram videos. Just reading an essay and listening to some music. What an amazing way to spend time. <laughs> well, thank you uh, for the plug and uh, yeah. thank you all for having me on. I love it. Um, I don't know if any, just like writing my essays, I don't even care if anybody was listening to this conversation. It's just such a pleasure <laughs> to spend an hour and a half talking about fish and uh, I could go for another hour and a half probably. So uh, yeah, let me know if uh, you ever want me to come back. Uh, there's a lot of fun 97 shows to discuss on the horizon. I was going to say, we should, we should, we should talk offline about having you come on uh, at least for a check-in on each of these tours throughout 97 because there's so much no, to dive into there's and something um, we want to talk about in the fall or anything it's <laughs> might be. Um, i don't know i'm not going back 25 years and listening to fall 97 you know no of course i'm gonna listen to every single one of them in a row because that's what you I, do i would be um, really excited to talk about uh august 10th 97 which is like one of my favorite early shows uh, at Deer Creek uh, that I attended and uh, is just not your typical 97 show at all and has some really, really under the radar jams. I think because the tape is, the odd is not great. I've been begging Kevin Shapiro uh, for a a professional release of that one for a long time. So maybe we can mark that Keep putting it out there and we will do the same. 
Yeah. It's a lot of late nineties Deer Creek shows. I just I just want a Deer Creek box set. Yeah, just do the Deer 1097, Creek. Box. 8398, yeah. and seven twenty five ninety nine. Those three, just do it. That's it. Great went box comes first. Sorry. <laughs> Twenty five years ago this summer. Top priority Rob, of the summer. Thank you so much for giving us uh so much time today. Thanks for all the writing and uh we will see you. We'll be in touch. Let's let's have you back on to talk some August ninety seven as well. Yeah, right, thanks, great. Rob. This is a lot of fun. See y'all later. Awesome, man. Have a good one. All right. That was great. Yeah, we did it. We did it. That was killer. We dove through June 97 with a focus on 613 and 614.97. Thank you, everyone out there for hanging with us here today. We will be back on Wednesday. We are going to be talking August 2012 pre-dicks. We're not touching, we are not going to be talking about dicks the Dix 2012 run quite yet. I had to pause right there. We're not going to be talking about the (laughs) Dix 2012 run quite yet. We're going to be talking about 815 through 829. Um, We may have a guest. We may not have a guest. We're trying to figure out if the guest will be available for that. But if not, we are still going to have an awesome discussion around a really influential two-week stretch of fish that would lead into one of the biggest runs of their overall career. So join us back here June 15th, Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Before we leave you, we do need to tell you once again, need to, want to tell you once again about our sponsors. Happy to. Happy to. Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located just outside of Burlington, Vermont, for years, Sunset Lake was a dairy farm that produced milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I've heard of them. Pretty good stuff. Really yeah, good stuff. Around. I had some fish food this weekend. My son was like, you're eating fish food? I was like, you should try it. It's got marshmallows in it. He tried it. And he was like, get more of that fish food stuff. 2019, <laughs> Sunset Lake diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. Sunset Lake CBD embraces Vermont's tradition for land stewardship by using sustainable and regenerative farming techniques. To build and protect healthy soils, they are 100% pesticide-free, use minimal tillage, and implement cover crops and crop rotations. They also serve as a research farm for the University of Vermont's agronomists to study hemp and inform best industry practices. Jonathan said it perfectly at the top. I'm just going to reiterate it. Sunset Lake's products are incredible, and to know that they are a quality organization that cares about the environment and cares about their staff, what more do you need? I just, that's what I need in this day and age. I just need to know that you're just putting a little bit more into the environment and your people. What else? You know what else you need? What? 20% off. You need Tell 20% off that. their products. You can get that by checking them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and using coupon code HFPOD for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer owned and Vermont grown. And we are also sponsored by cash or trade they are the only secondary ticketing marketplace where fans buy sell and trade tickets at face value fans are able to dm each other before during and after a transaction you can rate and review each other when the transaction is complete there are no added fees to sell your tickets all sales are fully protected by cash or trades traders protection policy which guarantees your money back your money back users can avoid purchase fees with a gold membership subscription and visit cashortrade.org to learn more. How about that? We will see you. Love it. Amazing resource, especially as we're getting ready for tour. Amazing, amazing stuff. We'll be back on Wednesday 
Once again, reminder, subscribe to Fish Essays, fishcrit.substack.com to read all of Rob's essays. We'll look forward to hanging with you all again here this week as we do the slog through summer to summer tour. It's in the distance, but it's coming. We got a lot of good stuff coming up here in the next couple of episodes. Thanks everyone for hanging with us. We'll see you all soon. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.